Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Michelle Carlo. When you're 15, the last thing you want to know is that somebody else is looking at you and knows that you are bleeding a lot. Okay, now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Otis Redding behind me now. What we're doing this week is doing a little redux, a little look back at some of our favorite radio-style stories that we've featured on our Winter Holidays episodes over the past decade. This episode is such a delight. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Kevin Bowl. But before that, oh, such a wonderful classic. This is Michelle Carlo, the author of the memoir, Fish Out of Agua. This story is also featured in another version, a, a written and prosy version, in the Risk book. So here is Michelle now with a story we call The Gift. I wish you were married. It was just a typical Tuesday a couple of weeks before Christmas. And I came home from school and went right into my bedroom. And instead of doing my homework, opened up the window and went out to the fire escape, lit a cigarette, took out my boombox, tried to, you know, make a mixtape, wrapped up some tinfoil on the antenna, pointing it towards the Whitestone Bridge so I can get some reception. So in between making the tape and smoking the cigarette, and now it's starting to snow and trying to keep the snow off the boombox, I didn't hear my mom come in the room and say that she needed me to stop whatever I was doing and go to the store for her right now. And I was like, oh, man. Because the last thing I wanted to do was, you know, stop making the mixtape and stop smoking my cigarette and go to the store for my mom. And then when she told me what she wanted me to get for her, that was the last thing that I wanted to get. Oh, my God. She wanted me to get Kotex. Not just any box of Kotex, but the super box of Kotex. The big, super box of Kotex that was bright 
purple with yellow letters and was so tall it stuck out of any bag it was put in. So when you were carrying it down the street, everybody who looked at that bag looked at you and knew that you were the one that was bleeding a lot. And when you're 15, the last thing you want to know is that somebody else is looking at you and knows that you are bleeding a lot. So I'm just like, I'm like growling to myself and I'm so pissed off and I'm stomping down the street to the drugstore, swearing that if I ever have a daughter, I'm never going to make her go out and buy my menstrual supplies. And I get to the drugstore and I put the box on the counter and the pimple face four-eyed cashier looks at me and I'm thinking to myself and I stomp out of the store and I'm starting to walk home and then all of a sudden I hear this whoosh and two boys run past me and they grab the bag out of my hand and they just keep running down the block and I'm just like oh my god these weren't just any two boys these were Dennis and Louie from the Overing Boys crew they were like the two coolest boys in the neighborhood. Every boy in the neighborhood wanted to be them and every girl in the neighborhood wanted to make out with them. I had the biggest hormonal raging first ever crush I ever had on Dennis. And I knew that it would never be reciprocated. So therefore, in my love, I had the kind of hate that only a teenager can understand. So I'm running after them and I, I try to catch up with them, but then they start playing Saluji with me. That's kind of like New York version of Monkey in the Middle. So I run up to, to Louie and he throws the bag to Dennis and I run up to Dennis and he throws the bag at Louie. And meanwhile, I'm just like terrified that one of them is actually going to look inside this bag and see what's in it. Because, you know, th- th- that, that's it. If they see Kotex and, and that's, I'm, I could just picture that my name is going to be Kotex head for the rest of my life. So my shame made me run faster than they could and I yelled out fuck and I just tackled Louie and the box of Kotex squirted out of the bag onto Westchester Avenue where a number four bus ran it over and I started bawling and Louie's back is to the street he doesn't see the maxi pads fluttering down Westchester Avenue in the slush and he's just like shell it's only a box of cookies and I was just like cookies and then Dennis comes over and he says shut up Louie And he looked at me, and I knew that he knew what was in the street, what was in the box. But for some reason, he wasn't going to tell. So he helps me up, and he says, come on, Shell, we'll walk you home. So we stopped walking back towards my house, and snow was really coming down now. I mean, there was at least a foot of it on the ground. And we're walking, you know, in my neighborhood, past the houses of people with small budgets and large imaginations and somewhere between the talking Rudolphs and the dancing Jesuses and competing sounds of Donna Summer Christmas album and Andy Williams Christmas album, we start playing. I remember twirling around trying to catch those big fat wet snowflakes on my tongue and then Dennis scoops up some snow from a car and throws it at Louis, and then Louis throws the snow at me, and then we start like climbing onto the cars, and you could do that. There's no car alarms back then, so we just like pulling all the snow and throwing at each other, and then we start pushing each other down, and then we start running, and then we decide that we're gonna just start rolling. One of us fell. I don't know who started it, but then we'd like this giant teenage snowball, and we're just like rolling in the street until all of us like we just hit this light post and. It's like a spell was shattered or something. And I remember standing up and somehow the three of us were holding hands. And this really freaked me out. So I just like dropped the hands and I'm just standing there. And I remember the sun was setting and the sky was just this blazing purple red. 
and in the halo of the streetlight, there was this snowflake that was on one of Dennis's eyelashes. I remember thinking that was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen in my life. And I, I knew that I had to stop looking at it, but I couldn't stop looking at it. And Dennis just kept looking at me and he said, Shell, are you home? And I just nodded because I, I, I couldn't speak. And then Dennis bent down and kissed me full on the lips. And then Louis kissed me on the cheek. And then they ran up the block saying, Merry Christmas, Shell. And meanwhile, I was just like floating on this cloud because I had never really been kissed on the lips by a boy before. So I'm just like, oh my God, I've been kissed. I felt like and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, when he, remember when he, he has the crush on Clarice and she kisses him and he goes, I'm cute, I'm cute. So I, I float up the five flights of stairs to the apartment and when my mother says, where's my box? I told her the bus ran it over. And she made me pay her back out of my allowance. And when my father came home from work, he had to go out and buy my mother's box. It went two feet of snow, and he wasn't very happy about it either. Not long after Christmas, Dennis and Louis were walking to McDonald's when a car drove around and yelled something at them. And then Louis threw a can of beer at them and then the car came around again and someone in the back seat shot at them Dennis and Louis were murdered and I don't know if you've ever been to a teenager's funeral but it's not like when your grandfather dies because he had a cough or smoking for 75 years it's it's a lot different and I remember Dennis's funeral Everybody from the neighborhood was there, boys, girls, parents. And I remember kneeling in front of the casket, crossing myself, and the casket was closed because they both died from massive head wounds. And I'm just there shaking and crying, and somebody kneels on, on the bench next to me, and it's, it's Dennis's mother. And I look at her, and she was just the grayest, saddest thing I had ever seen in my life. And she asked me if I had known Dennis well. And I didn't know what to say. I just said, yeah, kind of. And she looked at me for a minute. And then she went off to talk to somebody else. But now I realize that she, Dennis's mother, was there alone in that huge room of people because I didn't remember seeing any brothers or sisters, no father, no grandparents, no aunts, uncles, or cousins. It was just her. And she was probably about the same age then as I am now. And because now I have an adult mind, I realize what a gift it would have been for me to tell her what a gentleman her son was. That he didn't betray my secret. That he played in the snow with me and that his kiss was my first. And a lot of Christmases have 
come and gone since that day. But I'll never ever forget what the wind and the snow and the colored lights gave to me and Dennis and Louie on the last pure night of our childhood. up in an interfaith Jewish household, so our holiday traditions were always a bit unorthodox. One year, I decided to get a nativity scene. The sets tended to be expensive, so I got the manger and little felt figurines, each representing the three wise men and baby Jesus. Two years later, just a few days before Christmas, Dad and I got a little black cat named Salem from the Humane Society, and already he was a blasphemous little cat. He loved playing with the wise men and baby Jesus and would bat them around the house, get them lost, and sometimes try to eat them. Most of the time, we caught him and saved Jesus. But last year, I got a stomach virus during Hanukkah. Worrying it could be meningitis, Dad and I went to the nearest hospital downtown mid-afternoon. Six hours later, after confirming it was just a bad virus, I was allowed to go home, rehydrate, and rest. But while we were out, Salem's usual supper time ran over, and he didn't get fed. By the time we got home and were able to give him a belated supper, it was too late. Because when I went to look at the nativity scene, there were a few battered wise men and no baby Jesus to be found. One way of looking at it is this. Salem found Jesus and accepted him into his heart and his stomach. Back in 1986, when I was 13 years old, I received one of the best Christmas presents ever. It was from my sister, and it was a VHS copy of the Duran Duran video, Girls on Film. Now, I should preface this by saying, each Christmas Eve, our grandparents would come and stay with us, so when I opened the present Christmas morning, of course, we popped it right into the VCR to watch. I don't know how much you know about the video for Girls on Film, but as you love to say on risk, it's very uncensored. So when we got to the scene with the ice cubes on the nipples, my poor Irish Catholic grandmother's head was about to pop off her body. She turned to my sister, who was her favorite granddaughter, and just started screaming bloody murder, completely mortified that she thought this was an appropriate present to give to a 13-year-old girl. My poor sister had no idea that she was buying the uncensored version. Needless to say, we've had many a laugh at it over the years, and it is still one of my favorite Duran Duran songs to this day. So one of my first professional jobs as a dresser was for the Radio City Music Hall Christmas Spectacular featuring live reindeer. Why wouldn't it? <laughs> so as I was standing off stage ready with a basket to help one of the actors with a quick costume change, that's when Rudolph comes past me to enter the stage for his appearance. And reindeer aren't 
elegant like one would think. This is like a donkey with googly eyes. Antlers are shedding and spitting. It's not very pleasant. So before Rudolph goes on, it's pitch black and he moves on stage in front of me. Suddenly I hear a water faucet running and I'm thinking, who would turn the water on during the show? And then I look down and realize that Rudolph is relieving himself into my basket. Hot, steamy, and straight out the back. Into my basket and onto me. So, um, yeah, Christmas has never been the same since then. There was a blizzard in Brooklyn. The snow was falling down heavily, and there was talk of shutting down the subways. So I shut the bar down a little early that night to make sure that I could get home. But I also shut it down so that I could have the bar to myself in the blizzard. The bar where I work is one of the most beautiful bars in the city. It's over 130 years old. It's all hand-carved wood, details everywhere. There's a proscenium with a giant mirror over the back bar with gargoyles in either corner, stained glass with the first owner's initials in a coat of arms. There are 18-foot ceilings with the original tin and a bar that is a single piece of mahogany from end to end. And there are huge windows out front with bars on them. When the bar is closed, I will sit in my perch behind the bar, enjoy the silence, and perhaps read a book, and definitely have a whiskey. In a snowstorm, I like to watch the snow fall through the windows. The bar is particularly beautiful in a snowstorm. And if you squint when the cars are covered, and you have the sodium lights coming down from the street lamps, and there's an orange glow on the street, You can imagine, almost believe that you are in the 19th century, and you wouldn't blink an eye if a horse-drawn sleigh came up Bergen Street. So it was a perfect moment sitting there with my book, reading or not reading and sipping the whiskey. And then out of the storm, there was a knock on the front door. Not getting up from my chair, I drew my hand across my throat, giving the international signal for we are closed, and went back to my book. And the knock came again. And I'm thinking to myself, ah, for fuck's sake. So I heaved myself out of the chair to make my way to the front door. And as I get closer, I can see that there's this figure silhouetted against the streetlight. It's this young woman outside. I say to her... We're closed. I'm sorry. I can't help you. 
And she says, oh no, I know, I know, I'm sorry. I am so sorry. I can see that you're closed. I just, I'm staying with a friend in the neighborhood and I can't get in. I don't have the keys. Is it possible that I could wait inside until I hear from her? Fine, I say. And motion her to the back door to let her in. Now, after working a bar shift and dealing with people all day long, dealing with drunk people all day long, and the same stories over and over again, and dealing with the neediness of people, and the voices that are sometimes like ice picks in my skull, and hearing the same song played over and over again on the jukebox, all I want is the silence. I want this place to myself. So it was frustrating to let this person in, but I can't leave this woman on the stoop in a blizzard. So resigned, I go and open the door, and the storm blows in, and she blows in, and there's snow on her, and there's snow on the floor, and I shut the door against the wind. The steam is already coming off of her clothes. She pulls back her hood and takes off her scarf, and she's this beautiful young woman with close-cropped blonde hair, and sparkling eyes. She's stunning. But even that doesn't get past my defenses at this point. She says, thank you, thank you. I'm like, "Eh, no problem. So she finishes taking off her coat and I lead her into the bar and she's this little slip of the thing and she sits in the chair and I offer her a drink and I pour a whiskey for her. She starts to talk. Now, I'm still in my head at this point, and I'm kind enough to give her monosyllabic answers to her questions, but that's really all I can muster at this point. I'm waiting for this phone call to happen so that I can have the night back to myself. But she has this unrelenting cheeriness. Oh, this is the most beautiful bar. I love this bar. Thank you so much for letting me in. You're so kind to let me do this. I know it's difficult and... Yes, I say. Fine, thank you. No worries. And then she starts to go deep with the questions, which is like catnip to me. I love to go deep in a conversation. So I'm beginning to have more interest into the things that she's asking. She starts to ask me, how long have you been working here? A long time, I say. It must be difficult to do what you do and deal with all these personalities all day long. Yeah, it is. You know, I'm an actress, she says, so I know what it's like working in the food industry myself sometimes. I know what it's like to have to deal with that. And then we start talking about theater and we start talking about her work and how she loved figuring out a character that she was working on, finding the heart of the character. And I talked about how I love that too, being an actor. And I began to thaw a little bit. And then she asked me to put music on. Some bartenders, when they close up a bar, they will play music. They love to put their own personal playlist on and they DJ for a friend or two that they've got in the bar after hours. And for me, I adore the silence. I've been listening to the cacophony of people all day long and music and I just love the silence. But there's more, too, because I tend to feel things 
deeply. And music in particular is very evocative to me. I use it sparingly. So I say, no, no, you know, I'm, I'm good with the silence. And she says, please, just put on something. Who's your favorite artist, she says. <sighs> Billie Holiday, I say. She says, that's wonderful. Put some Billie Holiday on. Fine. So I go to the iPod, and I find Blue Moon. And Billie starts singing. And she fills the space with her voice, and it just seems like she lives there, too, and she's singing to us. And then the woman reaches over the bar for my hand. I'm flabbergasted. I don't know what to do for a moment. But the whiskey has softened me, and Billy's softened me, and her conversation has softened me. And so I take her hand, warm in mine, And she leads me around the bar, and we find an open space on the floor. I put my hand on her waist and take her other hand and hold it up. She puts her hand on my shoulder, and we start to dance. And Billy's singing to us, and we are slowly dancing to her music. And the snow is falling outside the giant windows. And I can feel her warmth next to me. I can feel the warmth beyond her body, this warm soul that has walked into my bar at this strange time. And we slowly move and she puts her head on my shoulder and we sway and I can feel her soft back and her soft hand and her head on my shoulder and it's just perfect. And then the song ends And I look at her and I can see the sparkles in her eyes and her smile melts my heart. And in that moment, I'm in love. And I sense nothing but love from her. So we grab our drinks. And we go to the front window. And we talk in whispers now, like children up after bedtime and stealing these moments of watching the snow and the light and feeling how lucky we are to be seeing this and then the call comes and it's time for her to go so we take our drinks to the bar and we put them down and I walk her to the back door and I unlock it as she's pulling on her coat and tying her scarf and putting her mittens on her hands and she looks at me and we hug And then I open the door and the storm blows in again and she disappears into the night. And I slowly make my way back to my perch behind the bar. My drink is there and my book is there and the snow is still falling and it occurs to me that yes, in fact, everything has changed. The room looks different, the snow looks different. And I think this was a perfect moment This must be what it's like to be inside of a snow globe. This perfect moment encased in glass, having no impact on anything that comes after, no connection with anything that came before, just this perfect crystalline moment in time. And I pick up my whiskey and I sip, and I think, that's what this is. This is a snow globe moment. 
And I thank her silently for opening my eyes to the beautiful surprises that can come out of a snowstorm on a dark night. This is Risk. This is the Ravenettes behind me now. And we just heard from Kevin Bull. He can be found on Twitter at Bolo the Clown. That's B-O-H-L-O, the clown. That story was um, edited by John LaSala. I'm pretty sure the story before that was edited by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. I think all the stories on today's episode were done by John or Jeff. And before that, we did a little experiment, something completely new. We had Risk fans send us recordings of mini stories of their own. Risk fan Amber had a story about her baby Jesus eating cat. Risk fan Kimra had a story about getting that X-rated Duran Duran video for Christmas. And Risk fan Carrie had a story about the urine of Rudolph, the part of the Radio City Rockettes spectacular that you uh, never knew you were missing out on. So thank you so much to all of the fans who sent in little mini stories. Maybe we can do this again next year. Let's get back to the stories in a little bit. We're going to hear from one of our very favorites, Sarah Long Hendershot. But before that, a story that was shared a few years ago by Monty Lamont. You can find him on Twitter at Montyism. Here he is now with a story we call The Year Without a Santa Claus. Jingling all the way The man with the merry Ha 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 Rides the reindeer sleigh Who flies across the rooftops 
I can't fool you because the man with the merry ha 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 is good old Santa Claus. So for me, growing up, Christmas was a very involved Catholic tradition, mainly because of the fact that my mother's family, when they came from Italy, being old school Italians, they actually believed that the guy that brought their church and faith to America was the second coming of Jesus Christ. His name was Father Celeste, and my family is basically all buried near him at the cemetery. That's how strong the faith is in this guy. So that being said, you didn't mess with the religion and things that were strong in the religion. That being Christmas, because that was baby Jesus's birthday, which my mother loved. Even though my parents were dirt poor and on welfare, they made sure that Christmas was it. It was the number one holiday of the year. Bigger than your own birth. I mean, this was it. My mother would actually ask me to start my Christmas list in April. I mean, I was spoiled rotten. And believe me, like most kids, I took advantage and I made the craziest, craziest lists. They were pages and pages long. They were written in crayon, but I got everything on that list. Except, of course, if it was like a pony, which I did ask for more than once. And my parents actually tried to make up for it. One time they bought me a bunch of baby chickens because my father was raised on a poultry farm. It was nice, but they lasted one or two weeks. I ended up throwing them over the side of a porch from our second floor apartment because I thought they could fly! Who knew baby chickens couldn't fly? Not me! <laughs> That being said, the threat of someone telling me there was no such thing as Santa Claus was a genuine fear of my mother's for some reason. And you did not want to ruin Catholic family tradition, believe me. Plus, I was the king. Like, my parents spoiled me rotten, and whatever I said went, and you did not mess with the king. So now it's kindergarten, 1976, and we're living on the west side of Chicago, so my dad could freely do things I'm not at liberty to speak of. I mean, we are in the ghetto. Like one time I found shattered glass on the floor in the alley, and I thought they were diamonds, and I couldn't wait to bring them home because I was like, we're going to be rich, but we weren't. So anyway, I'm in kindergarten, and we're learning to lace up entire shoes, and some kid comes up to me for no reason at all, and he just says to me, Hey, white boy, you know there's no such thing as Santa? And I was shaken to my core. One, I was one of the only, if not the only, white kid in class being publicly humiliated. Plus, Santa, the guy that came and helped baby Jesus, all being ripped out of my world. So I started to cry and scream like a maniac. My teacher actually had to come and hold me, and they had to call my parents and wait for my parents to come and get me. It was a disaster. And when I got home, my parents went freaking crazy. That was when my mother, who never swore, swore like a maniac, and I learned the word jagoff, asshole, and motherfucking asshole motherfucker, and I actually thought my father was going to go back to school and murder that kid because he was that type of a guy. It was a terrifying incident for me. And I also learned at that moment my parents would stop at nothing to restore the faith. 
So it was Christmas morning after the incident. Now, I was sleeping, and it was 6 a.m., and my dad, he comes bursting into my room, screaming, boy, boy, wake up, Santa's here. And I was like, oh, what, I'm sleeping, what? Oh, oh, wait a minute, Santa's here. And I jumped out of bed like the room was on fire, and I ran to the front window and scanned the apartment, and I saw nothing but my dad standing by an open window. But by the window, there was a bunch of snow on the floor with big boot prints in it, and my dad was standing there, and he stuck his head out the window, and he began to yell, boy, boy, come quick, there he goes, there goes Santa. And I ran to the window, barefoot, through the cold snow, making sure I did not step in Santa's tracks. And I get to the window, and there's nothing. And then all of a sudden, I hear in the distance, Ho, 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 Merry Christmas, Monty. Wow, what? Santa here? And he said my name? Santa was for real. My parents did it. The faith was restored. Santa was real. Plus, he left me a note and it was one of those really nice notes, you know, that you would get from the mall on the resume, brown paper. And it was written in calligraphy. I mean, it was totally official. I remember when I went back to school, I had my head held high. Santa was real. I was his friend and I had a note to prove it. I did find out later in life that the guy playing Santa was a friend of my dad's who stood on the roof since 5.30 a.m. in the cold Chicago snow waiting to get a free bag of something from my father that I'm not at liberty to speak of, but I heard it smells a lot like skunk. All was quiet on the Christmas front. A year or two had passed and everything was going well. I believed in Santa and there have been no challenges since the last incident. After that last episode, though, my dad taught me to take no crap. He was always like, next time someone fucks with you in school, hit him in the face with a book. And I did, and I became the class bully. I mean, no one was being a jerk to me at this point. Until one day I was in second grade, and I got into some sort of, like, bullshit male competition thing with this kid, and I had him in a headlock, you know, which is really tough to break out of, so in hopes of me letting him go, he just says, You're a dummy. There is really no Santa. And that was weird, and came out of nowhere, but then I was like, What? what? No Santa? For real? And he goes, Yeah. And... I believed this jerk so much I just let him go. He dropped to the floor and I freaked out, screamed and cried like a maniac all over again. The teachers already knew this kid has problems and they swaddled me again and I had to wait for my mother to come and pick me up from school. Hyper embarrassing, hyper crazy. It was beginning to seem that no Santa was my kryptonite, like my Achilles heel. My God in no Santa-fearing mother is now really, really scared that I'm going to lose my faith forever. All bets are off. She is not having it. So she says, get in the car. Let's go. 
She takes me to Sister Bernard. Oh, and by the way, we didn't even have a car. My mother actually had to beg a friend of hers to let us use their car so she can immediately, because this was a, a, a fucking stage four disaster, so she could take me to Sister Bernadette, which was a nun from the church I was raised going to. So we get to Sister Bernadette, and my mother sits me down in front of her, and she says, go ahead, tell her. Now, I am trembling with the fear of God, because Sister Bernadette is no fucking bullshit. One time, I saw somebody mess up her breakfast order, and they brought her scrambled eggs instead of over-easy eggs, and she said, what is this? Get this out of here. I specifically asked for over-easy, and she pushed the plate away from her. I mean, she was not fucking around. So Sister Bernadette now looks at me very seriously, and she knows that I am having doubts about Santa. And she smiles at me and she says, Oh, my dear Monty, there really is a Kris Kringle. That boy is a fool and probably gets no presents for Christmas. Don't listen to fools. And then she kisses my forehead. That was it, I gotta tell you. I was done hook line and sinker blessed with the truth it felt like god had touched me himself and said you're in you're in the next day i kicked that kid's ass again and i officially became santa's little renegade from then on whenever someone would question the existence of santa claus i would just kick their ass i knew the truth by sixth grade it seemed only I knew the truth. I must have beat up like six to eight kids for talking crap about Santa. I'm completely unaffected and unfazed by that. Like I have no mental scars from that. But there has to be at least two to three, maybe six kids out there today that are shaken by the fact that someone beat their ass over mentioning the fact that there's no such thing as Santa, which there really isn't. Some time passes. It's October 1986. I'm a freshman at Lincoln Park High School, which is a very fancy school. I was a drama major. And, you know, I got to tell you, I wanted to, like, keep up with the Joneses. This was a nice neighborhood, lots of rich kids. And I came from a poor west side of the city. But I knew, you know what? I'm locked in with Santa. I'm going to ask for some really nice fucking shit. Like a Sony Walkman, which came out at the time with the tape deck. And maybe some, some Dracar Noir Cologne. You know, real expensive, fancy stuff that poor kids can't get. But rich kids could. And since I was tight with Santa, I can get whatever I want. I was locked and loaded. My Christmas list was set. I couldn't wait. So now I'm sitting in my front room, you know, watching TV, when all of a sudden, my parents both come walking towards me with this concerned look on their faces. And my parents never bothered me during He-Man, I mean, that's my jam. And I sat straight up and I said, uh, what's up? My mother hesitates at this point, she can't even face me, she turns her head. And my dad, he scrunches his eyes shut slumps his shoulders and sighs and at this point i'm like what the fuck I, what's going on and then my mother blurts out there's no such thing as santa claus <laughs> what <laughs> what i mean what what 
What? It feels like I just got fucking punched in the midsection and had the air knocked out of me. I, I was stunned at every Christmas, every story, every ass-kicking I delivered flashed before my eyes. I had been lied to my whole life, deceived, tricked, and by the ones who loved me and I loved most, <laughs> I screamed out again, What? What did you say? My mom immediately went to hug me, and I pulled and pushed away from her. And then I screamed, cried, ran into my room, shut and locked the door. In that exact order. I was an asshole. I felt like I was in a relationship with someone who had just told me they never really loved me and that everything we had was just a lie. But this was worse. It was all over. Santa's little renegade just died. I didn't know what to do, what to think. I felt blurry, disconnected, like I was in a, a, a bubble. Hours passed, then I finally came out of my room and screamed like a maniac, why? Why did you do this to me? Oh, I was such a dramatic spoiled shit. Why did you lie to me? My mom stood there and she just cried and she said, sorry, you're getting too old. We had to tell you. And I just crumbled and we hugged and held each other for what seemed like an eternity. That first Christmas with no Santa was weird. I didn't want any presents. It was over. I was sad. In some time, I mean, I got back into Christmas and I told my parents how much I loved those awesome Christmas experiences they gave me. But three years ago, there was a huge change in my family. My father was diagnosed with terminal cancer and, and that was awful news. So for his last Christmas, we went all out. Whatever my dad wanted, we did. And all he really wanted was crazy fucking lights everywhere and a Christmas tree covered in tinsel and those stupid fucking popcorn balls, which he had no teeth. He had a few teeth right in the bottom, but he would grind them on his teeth. But we got him those. And we put the Christmas lights up everywhere. And when I say everywhere, I mean he wanted them on the couch. He wrapped them around his fucking dresser in his bedroom. It was crazy. My mother... Usually, you know, we do like a, Italian like meatballs or some shit like that. But this year, my dad wanted his favorite was a spiral cut ham from Aldi. Now, I know what you're thinking. If you're from Chicago, Aldi's like the cheapest of the cheap. But man, that fucking spiral cut ham is the fucking best. And we did it. And he loved it. And he was so thrilled. He was happier than a big and shit. He was all smiles and just full of love and full of joy. And it was the best. And you know what? I did suspect that Christmases might become depressing for me from then on. But when I saw all the joy and wonder in my dad's eyes his last Christmas, I realized something. My dad and my mom gave me a gift that will never stop giving. They created all of those wonderful moments that I now cherish as memories. And that's why my dad loved his last Christmas so much. Because we were giving that gift of joy and wonderful experience of Christmas right back to him. 
So I'm happy and proud to say that even though I'm now 44 years old, my mother still asks for my Christmas list every April, and I love her for it. Still spoiled, still rotten. Merry Christmas. Sam Hill, you yelling for George? Yes, I'm the one that you don't hear. Help! 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 It was a bitterly cold Rochester, New York, December, and the power was out in my apartment. And it wasn't out because a storm knocked it out. It was out because I didn't have the money to pay the energy bill. There were only five more days till Christmas, and there was no heat. There were no lights. There was no refrigerator. And this kind of setback, I would have been not that difficult to deal with if I had been single. But I was a single mom, and I had this great 11-year-old son. And, you know, as a parent, I think especially as the only parent, just way down deep in the core of your being, you want to give your child a nice holiday. There's this awareness that these are memories that your kid is going to have for the rest of his life. Rochester winters are really gray and unrelenting. And it helps you to get through it if you have a place to go that's cozy and bright and you can kind of count off the winter season through the holidays. You know, you've got Thanksgiving, and then there's Christmas, and then New Year's, and before you know it, you're almost a Valentine's Day, and you can see St. Patrick's Day off in the distance, and then things are starting to thaw, and you know that you made it through another one. But things had been sliding downhill for me for months, and now (laughs) they had shut us off right before Christmas, and it just, it fills you with shame. I kept trying to play it all off as an adventure for him. He was bright and happy kid, and we would go to the library, and we would get tons of books, and we would crawl under blankets with flashlights and read them, and we had all the Harry Potter books, and we had all the Tintin adventures, and I would read them out loud, and I would have a unique voice for every character, and it really was fun, but eventually you have to come out from underneath the blanket, and you're in your apartment, and you can see your breath, and you dash 
through the house to the bathroom and the porcelain is like a big block of ice and you wash your hands and the water is so cold that it physically hurts and it turns your hands into claws and it's only fun for so long and you have to learn how to pretend for your child. The month before, in the days leading up to Thanksgiving, I hadn't been able to pay the bill, but they didn't shut us off right away. Shane and I came up with this idea for our Thanksgiving feast. We were going to try to come up with enough money to buy a single entree from the Chinese restaurant for our Thanksgiving feast. So we pulled all the cushions off of the sofa and we found some change in there. We collected cans and bottles from neighborhood recycling bins and returned them. We even took out the cardboard folder that we'd been putting all the new state quarters in. We pried those back out. And Thanksgiving Day, we counted up our money and we had enough for an entree. And it was very exciting. And we walked there together in the crisp fall air. And Shane chose shrimp with oyster sauce because it sounded like the fanciest thing on the menu. We walked back home. It was a beautiful day. We were going to really make it festive. We were going to cuddle up together on the sofa with our blankets and eat our Chinese food while we watched a VHS copy of It's a Wonderful Life. And Shane was chattering away like he liked to do, and I was dishing out the food. I put a very healthy portion onto his plate. I set it on the table for him with a glass of water. He came over to get it, and he picked it up, and I still ask myself to this day, why did I serve it to him on a paper plate? But for whatever reason, I did. And as he turned away from the table with his plate in one hand, his glass of water in the other, the balance of the food shifted, and it just slipped out of his hand. And I watched it, like in slow motion, just falling towards the floor, and of course, turning over to land food side down on the carpeting. I saw his face just change in that split second. It was one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever seen. The joy, it just evaporated. And I saw the sadness and the guilt just wash over him. We had pulled off this minor miracle and now it was ruined. And I had to think really fast. Your parenting instincts, they just kick in. And I held up the plate that I had just filled with the remainder of the food, and I said, no, 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 it's fine. You're good. That's perfectly fine. You accidentally picked up my plate. This is your plate. And that food is fine. The food on the floor, it's still good. There's a, a three-second rule, and I ran over, and I scraped it up off the carpet with all the detritus and the dog hair, and I knew that I was going to have to eat it all. I could see the tears in his eyes, and he didn't really believe me, but I knew I was going to have to really sell it, so I did. I just said, mmm, oh, isn't this great? And then I distracted him. Circumstances had brought us to Rochester, which was a new town to us, earlier that September. 
And we didn't know anybody in Rochester. The job that I had been promised upon my arrival never materialized, and I had not been able to find another one. I had watched what little savings we had evaporate in three months. And my first family was fractured and far away. And many of my old friendships hadn't survived the realities of my single parenthood. Most of my old friends were musicians, and they all had their own struggles with money, too. Sometimes there just isn't someone to go to. I think that this is what people who are used to consistency in their lives don't understand about people who walk the line between solvency and poverty. You can be okay for a long time, and then some unexpected thing or two things go south, and then the dominoes are falling, and you're suddenly in poverty, and it's daunting and exhausting to claw your way out of it. You just don't have any slack. So as Christmas approached, it became harder and harder to keep depression at bay and to hide our dire circumstances from Shane. I didn't know if we were going to be able to pay our rent, and I was afraid that we were going to end up in a shelter. And we were living off of spaghetti because I could get a pound of spaghetti noodles for 49 cents and a jar of ragu for 79 cents. Shane was okay with that because he loved spaghetti. But how was I going to get us through Christmas? Shane was at school for the last day before the holiday break. I sat in that cold and silent apartment, and it's amazing how quiet it gets in winter when there's no power in the house because there's no hum of the refrigerator or the clicking of your computer keys or the TV or the radio. There's just nothing. And I read the want ads again, even though I knew that nobody was hiring a few days before Christmas unless I wanted to become a long-haul trucker. And I heard downstairs someone walk across our porch and a thump. I went to the window and I saw the big brown UPS truck out front. I wasn't expecting anything. So I pulled the blanket more tightly around my shoulders and I went down the narrow stairway to the front door and I opened it up and I got hit with this arctic blast of cold. There was a box sitting there, just a plain brown box. It was maybe about the size of a toaster oven or so. I picked it up. I saw the return address was Naples, Florida. I couldn't think of anyone that I knew in Naples, Florida. I shook the box, but it didn't make any noise. So I took it upstairs, and I sat down on the floor with a pair of scissors, and I scraped the scissors along the end of the box. And as soon as the tape released the flaps, they sprung out, and wads of paper money came shooting out onto my lap and onto the floor. I couldn't believe my eyes. I was stunned and dumbfounded. I reached my hand in, and the entire box was packed full of crumpled up paper money. And there were a lot of ones, but there were fives, and there were tens, and there were twenties. And 
I, I was laughing and crying at the same time. I, what in the it was just the last thing in the world that I ever expected to see. There had to be four hundred dollars at least. It was a treasure of incredible bounty to me at that point in my life. I thought to myself, Naples, Florida, Naples, Florida, and I remembered my friend Paul, who I hadn't seen for several years. He was a piano player, and he spent half the year working in the Thousand Islands and half the year working down in Florida playing piano in bars. And I called him up, and he told me that every night that he played, he took his tip jar at the end of the night and he would dump it into his piano case. And at the end of the year, he would take all the money and he would donate it to somebody that he thought could use it. And for some reason, I had crossed his mind. I stuffed the money back in the box and taped it back up again so that when Shane came home from school, he could sit down on the floor in the same place I was and he could open the box himself and get the same surprise and shock that I had gotten. And there was enough money in that box to get the power back on in time for Christmas. And there was enough money for a small tree and some gifts for each other and enough for a Christmas dinner. We also took a portion of that money and we bought several pairs of gloves and a stack of gift certificates from McDonald's and we went out into that freezing cold December and we gave them away to people who looked like they needed them. The woman at the bus stop, whose chin was tucked down into her cloth coat and her hands stuck under her armpits. And the man we saw riding his bike with bright red hands grabbing the metal handlebars. He told us that it was the only way he had to get to work. And those interactions were filled with joy and gratitude. And we kept that tradition for many years until Shane went away to college. I realized that it had all begun with a man sitting in a bar and the people there listening to something that made them happy. And so they gave him something for that. And he shared it with us. And we shared it with other people. And who knows where it went from there. But what it also did was it got me through the end of a really tough year and into a new one. And that new year brought a new job and new friends and a new boyfriend who turned into a loving husband and father. That completely unexpected act of kindness kept the other dominoes from falling, and it held us together. It was a beautiful Christmas.
Come down to the manger See the little stranger Wrapped and swaddled Oh, the Prince of Peace The wheels start turning Torches start burning Behold the wise men Who journey from That is all for this week's episode. This is Bahamas Behind Me Now, and we just heard from Sarah Long Hendershot and an interstitial by Jeff Barr before that. Don't forget that if you or anyone you know has a good winter holidays story, you can always pitch us. You can pitch us those stories. You can pitch us your scary Halloween sorts of stories. You can pitch us any stories any time of year at risk-show.com slash submissions. There's a video there that gives you tips on how to pitch us. If you have any questions, if you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm a little confused about what to make my story about, you can even reach out to me personally at kevin at risk-show.com. And you can certainly recommend that your friends and family members pitch us as well. Follow us and stay in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're at Risk Show. On Twitter and Instagram, I am at the Kevin Allison. You can find the tables of contents for all the episodes at risk-show.com. You can participate in our conversations with our fans at the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook. On our Patreon at patreon.com slash risk, you will find lots of bonus content, uh, stories, more stories to hear, check-ins and interviews with some of the folks behind the scenes, lots to find at patreon.com slash risk. And if you become a member there, you will be helping us keep this running. There's also plenty of educational opportunities with us over at thestorystudio.org one-on-one training there's training that you can get by downloading videos or online training that happens with your instructor and other students at the same time there's classes in new york and minneapolis and los angeles and there's our corporate training we have done corporate training in storytelling skills for a lot of organizations like Google and Pfizer and American Express and Citibank. That's all at thestorystudio.org. And to keep up with all our live shows, to find out where Risk is appearing live next, don't forget to check risk-show.com slash tour. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Son of a carpenter.